Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Thank you for that reading. God bless you guys. It's wonderful to be with you here uh, this morning. Turn to your neighbor and say, go Bronco Nation. Let's go. All right. Turn to your other neighbor and say, go Cowboys. Go Cowboys. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. I want to thank my father. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he had like a, t- a two-week mini-series. We'll call it a prelude to our next seven to nine weeks with this new message series that we're entering into. So I want to thank my father, Pastor Ken, the founder of Capital Church. Can you give him um, a warm thank you for his message? messages. And then Tracy, my sister, spoke last week just to kind of get us ready, warmed up for uh, the next nine weeks to nine years, right? So uh, excited to be here with you this morning. But before I get into that, can you uh, thank Trace for her message as well? We love you, Tracy, wherever you are. So today we're going to be talking about um, a few things, and I want to start with John chapter 18. Jesus is in this conversation with Pilate. Everyone said Pilate. Pilate. And this is what Jesus says, my kingdom, everyone say my kingdom, is not of this world. He then also says, he says a few things, and at the end of this clause that we find in John chapter 18, he says, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus makes it very clear to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, and his kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is a disembodied location. We call it heaven, where people eventually go to in a post-mortem existence, and they shine like Rihanna's diamonds. Okay. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying my kingdom is not from this world, which is another way of of talking about heaven. And one day we'll go there and we'll just, you know, we'll turn into little tiny people, disembodied people with angel wings. Okay. That is not what Jesus is suggesting. And many people, especially in the popular imagination, think and assume that's what Jesus is saying as he talks about his kingdom is not from this world world. Jesus is not suggesting this. In fact, what Jesus is actually saying, the translation uh, would be better if it was like this. Jesus said to Pilate, uh, my kingdom is not grown from the soil of this world. In other words, the kingdom of Jesus is radically different in its character and in its values than all the other kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is not a disembodied location. The kingdom of God is a real dimension. It's a, re, it's, it's a real reality. Can I get an amen to that? That is invading space and time and wants to make all things new. Heaven is not a non-temporal spatial place way out there trillions of miles uh, from us. Heaven overlaps with our space, our time, our stories, our past, our future. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is a real reality, a dimension that has a character and has values that are antithetical, I'll get my voice back, to the kingdom of this 
world. In fact, I've talked about this a lot, but you go to Daniel chapter 7 and you have this vision, this nightmarish vision of Daniel who wakes up after seeing four primordial monsters emerging or mega beasts merging from the sea of chaos and uh, attempting uh, to dominate the world. You have the Philadelphia Eagles, the Washington Commanders. That's an old joke, right? It's a good one. But they're monsters. In fact, Daniel's vision makes it very clear that the kingdoms of this world have been animalified. The humanness of the kingdoms of this world, the world of flesh, the devil, man, they want to dehumanize our lives. They want to enslave people to destructive habits. So the, the kingdom of God, and this is what Jesus is saying, is not morally neutral. Please hear me. The kingdom of God basically, because we have grace talk out there and we need to talk about the grace of God. Can I get an amen to that? But if we're not careful as pastors, we talk about grace and we, we kind of make the assumption that everything is blessed in the kingdom of God. And that everything goes in the kingdom of God and there's nothing maladaptive in the kingdom of God. As if the kingdom of God is morally neutral. It is not morally neutral. God has made us in his image. You are an image bearer, which means your choices have meaning. And dignity, which implies this larger story that you are a purposed being. I'm preaching today. You have purpose, which implies that, man, your choices matter. What you do matters. You're not a morally neutral being. And this is what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus is saying that there are behaviors and habits in this world that are in direct opposition to God's good purposes for our life. And so Jesus announces at the beginning of his public ministry that the kingdom of God has arrived. This is a dramatic statement. Essentially, Jesus is saying the end of the world has come. Not the end of the space-time continuum. Jesus is not some eccentric preacher with a placard saying you're all going to go to hell and die. Right? Jesus is not one kind of those preachers. Jesus is saying that death and sin and sickness and everything that has defaced God's beautiful world, it's time is coming to an end. Sin is coming to an end. All the things that erode human dignity is coming to an end through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then what does Jesus do after he announces the kingdom of God? He says, and we modern people don't like this talk, but we're going to talk about this for a while. He says, repent yes. and believe. And they're, they're, they're mutually, they're not mutually exclusive, repent and believe. And I'm not going to get into that. But I do want to talk about repentance really quick. Repentance does not primarily mean that Jesus is saying, guys, you got to get religion right? Or when you repent, you got to come up to the altar, you got to cry your face off and make sure that you get a long list of all the things that you've done wrong and you make it right, right? Or Jesus is not suggesting that, man, you go to Vegas and, or don't go to Vegas and don't do cocaine, okay? 
Now, I think we all would agree, don't go to Vegas and do cocaine. Can I get an amen to that? But Jesus is not offering, when he says, repent, like a new kind of moralism. My gosh, we got to stop it, people. Jesus is offering a brand new way of life when he says repent. Repent basically means, in, in the Greek word, it's metanoia. It means to go beyond the mind that you have. Am I too loud this morning? It means to see reality yourself, the world, as God sees it. To have a perspective as, as, as God sees reality. Repentance means to see as Jesus sees. It's to say yes to the values of the kingdom of God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean first change your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who will change your life, as as Pastor Mark talked about it, in his really nice suit. The Holy Spirit will change you. Repentance is not first, oh, I got to change. Repentance is reorienting your life to how God sees reality. It's lining your life up with the values of the kingdom of God. And it's also saying a big, hard, stinking no to the ways of life that goes against uh, life and human flourishing. Values, values. The kingdom of God has values. The message of Jesus is all about the values of the kingdom. So over the next seven to nine to maybe nine years, we'll see. But over the, specifically over the next seven to nine weeks, we're going to talk about the five distinctive uh, features or values of the early church. Get excited. We're going to talk about everything, all right? Everyone say everything. From, we will be talking about everything from blessing one's enemy, loving your enemy. We're going to be talking about caring for the poor. We're going to be talking about the church's absolute opposition to infanticide, abortion. We're going to be talking about tabling as a multi-ethnic people. And today we're going to talk about what no one wants to talk about, okay? But I'm going to do it, all right? We are going to talk about this week and probably the following week and maybe the following week, we are going to talk about and we're going to focus sharply on God and human sexuality. We have to talk about our culture of sex where everything has been pornified. We have to talk about God and human sexuality. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about the 40-year-old virgin. I'm, we're going to be discussing transgenderism. We're going to talk about Gnostic religion. We're going to talk about a lot of different ideas. We're going to get to the heart of the matter. And I want you to think and feel the way that God thinks and feels. My hope is that our hearts and minds over the next seven to nine weeks are transformed radically by the power of God. So are you ready? There's so much that, that I want to share today, but I only have about 25, 30 minutes, and I was up all night. Someone knocked on my window. My dog barked all night. I had two kids throwing up, and then I had another three kids that were in my bed, kicking me in the face. I didn't get to bed until 4.30, so that's probably why I'm talking so fast, okay? So I need clarity. Help me, Jesus. And everyone said amen to that. Amen. So we come back to the story 
In John chapter 18, Jesus and Pilate are in a back, back and forth rhetorical battle. And Jesus says in verse 37, my purpose, this is fascinating to me because as modern people, we are uncomfortable with this. Jesus says, my purpose is to bear witness to the truth. The truth? No, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. But Jesus says, I bear witness to the truth. And then he continues, everyone who is in the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate cynically responds, what is truth? So Jesus is defining, and this is, this is so fascinating to me, especially within our cultural moment. Jesus is defining his entire raison d'etre, his purpose around a transcendent, objective reality. He's defining his mission or his purpose around a sacred order that lies outside of ourselves. Jesus, and I've said this many times before, but Jesus often says, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is a truth guy. In John's prologue, uh, in, in chapter one, uh, he tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. They're not mutually in- incompatible realities. These two, grace and truth, um, work together. They harmonize together. They overlap together. Without one or the other, we slide into opposition to God's plan for creation. We need grace. Everyone say grace. And we need truth. Jesus also tells his disciples, if you abide in my words, this is chapter eight, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus tells his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth, 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 truth. Think about this. What what Jesus is not saying is that truth is an arcane, cold thing that God uses to bludgeon us. Like when we think of truth, we think of what? Cold, hard facts, right? We think of Bible thumpers, right? We think of someone coming and just being way too honest about reality. In fact, they're more honest than serious and they don't understand the grace and the love of God, right? But truth is not something that we use to bludgeon and manipulate people. Truth is a person. In fact, before I got up here, Shane and I were having a conversation, and I love this, and he, he reminded me that God comes to us with soft power. This is truth. He doesn't bludgeon us. He coaches us. So when you hear truth, don't like start shaking and like, oh, no, no, don't bring the truth. No, you want the truth. Why do you want the truth? Because truth is reality. Truth is what's really out there. But Pilate, he's the modern man before modern man, or he's the modern person before modern people. And this is his response to Jesus. When Jesus says, my entire purpose is about truth, he says, what is truth? He's a cynical man. In fact, he's essentially when he says that, he's reducing truth to a game. He's reducing truth to someone's preference. He's reducing truth to uh, a rigged game in the world of politics. And as we talk about sex here in the next few minutes, we have to first talk about how the world sees truth because both of those are intimately connected, truth and sex. And why is that so important? Well, because in our world, everyone is pilot now. Are you hearing me? 
everyone, guys, they're saying it. What is truth? What is it? Truth for much of the world, if you don't know this, is a socially constructed character of reality. And I can't get, I, I can't go long and hard on this, but essentially what that means is we've killed God. We're self-creators. In fact, the famous Latin phrase, vox populate, vox dei, means the voice of the people is the voice of God. Basically, that runs many democratic societies. Hey guys, we are in charge. We are in control. Well, how did the pandemic, what, how did that affect us, right? And our understanding of, of ourself and our ability to control nature. I think over the last few years, we've realized we're not in control as much as we thought we were. So the truth for many people is the socially constructed character of reality. In the words of Alistair McIntyre, he's a famous um, philosopher, somewhat unreadable, but I'll just try to steal some of his ideas. And he says this, he calls the way the people, way this world primarily in the West sees uh, truth is called emotivism. Charles Taylor calls um, uh, our culture of culture of authenticity, which all of that basically means that all of our evaluative judgments, more specifically our moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preferences or feelings or attitudes. So if you're confused about that, it's just, it's, uh, I'll make it even more simple. Right and wrong for many people is just simply about personal taste, right? We, we, we root our moral, ethical systems not in a sacred order, not in God. We root it in our personal taste. So how I feel is the most important thing, my truth about me. It's, it's much like, again, the, the way people see truth is much like me and how I see apple pie. I can't stand it. <laughs> apple pie is, is un-American. It's disgusting. Cherry pie is American, okay? How many of you like cherry pie or strawberry rhubarb, right? Come on, it's amazing. Now, some of you, how many of you love apple pie, right? Oh my God, the devil's a liar. Put your hands down, right? What, what, you love apple pie because you have a preference for apple pie. Are you making a moral judgment about it? No, you just like it. Right? I love cherry pie because I'm right, but I love cherry pie. Well, basically it's my preference, right? That is how we've reduced every ethical system too. We've reduced it to just a matter of taste. So how I feel, please hear me, is the truth. The subjective, the inner life is ultimate. In the words of Philip Reef, it's called the triumph of the therapeutic. We have psychologized our life. Nothing outside of us matters. It's only the inner life, the subjective, the therapeutic, my personal psychology, how I feel that matters the most. And we're gonna talk more about this over the next few weeks, but how is this related then to sexuality? It's really simple. If truth is based on emotivism or how I feel, then the logic goes, how I feel is about personal satisfaction, and personal satisfaction is all about what makes me happy. Then enters the great 
the psychologist Sigmund Freud in the early part of the 20th century, and he took emotivism and he twisted it, and many of his ideas have been largely rejected except for one. For Freud, sexual desire and fulfillment is what makes us humans happy. In fact, sex makes us fully human, fully authentic. Sex is truth. Freud was wrong about the id, the ego, the superego, whatever, the, the tripartite part of our psychology. He was wrong with many other things, but his lasting legacy is that he completely sexualized the West. So at the deepest level, in the words of Carl Truman, sex is identity, sex is politics, sex is culture, sex is to be authentic. Authentic. I was hoping for a good amen on that. <laughs> Michel Foucault, famous atheist existentialist, who I disagree with most of his stuff except for this one thing, and this is what he said because he was so confused in the 60s about this, and he largely was incoherent, but he was brilliant, but he said this, sex has become more important than our soul, more important than our life. We have chosen in this Faustian deal to exchange life in its entirety for sex itself, for the truth and the sovereignty of sex. Sex now is worth dying for. This is why everyone understands, even if you have not seen the movie, which I haven't, so don't judge me, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, we all understand that to be a comedy. Right? You don't even have to see this movie, but you know because of our sexualized culture, there's basically no such thing. This movie's not a drama, it's not a serious reflection or film about human sexuality, because the idea of a middle-aged virgin in our sexualized culture is comical. Are you hearing me? It speaks because who you are, your personal happiness, your truth is organized around sexual fulfillment. So this movie, because it's, such, it's a comedy, speaks of someone who is inadequate, one who has failed at living life. So this is, and I'm going through this really quick. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. So then we come to the, the, the hard truth of where so many people are at in the church and outside the church. We have to come to the issue of porn. Porn, because of technology, is now everywhere. Porn is easily accessible. In fact, with my 11-year-old boys, I have to be very careful with what they watch. I mean, things just pop up all the time. I think we need to adjudicate social media. Can I get any man with our children? Should we protect our kids? Yes, we should do that. Um, but because porn is easily accessible, because sexual fulfillment is the highest good, it is the ends of human existence, pornography has degraded the human mind. Yes, you've heard it so many times, and I'll say it. Pornography is the, is the commodification of souls and people. Yes, Pornography is exploitative. Yes, we all know. The studies are, are irrefutable. It leads to violence. In fact, uh, the more you are involved and participate in porn, the more your sexual taste changes. In fact, the more you are in porn, we know from, from neuroscientists that porn fundamentally rewires your brain. Yeah. 
Your brain, we call this neuroplasticity. Your brain is formed by particular habits and practices and porn has a unique place. It's demonic, fly. (laughs) Get out of my face. Porn has a unique ability to degrade the human mind. In fact, and it's important that we talk about those things, but I want to talk about the bigger thing. And Pope John Paul says this, porn isn't just about the commodification of souls. Porn is not just about exploitative violence. Porn erodes human dignity. There is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little of the person. Porn is an attack, and I'll try to like distill what he was saying. Porn is an attack on human dignity, which then is an attack on the value of life, which then is an attack on meaning, which ultimately then is an attack on purpose. Porn is a purposeless adventure. Porn also destroys personhood. It removes the human dimension. It destroys the personality, and it reduces the most intimate act between a man and a woman to a technique, as if you were robotic or an animal. When you detach sex from human relationship and respect and love, you then turn yourself into an animal. Daniel chapter seven, the primordial monsters represent the kingdoms of this world. This is what porn and sex addiction does to the human heart. Let me say this really quick, and I can talk more about this, I don't have time to talk about this, but when it comes to sex addiction and porn in the church, there's a lot of you here today struggling with it, or a lot of you in the fight with this. Let me just say this. Um, many of us have life histories that are fraught with sexual failure and brokenness. And many of you today are bound up, or some of you are bound up, in, um, in a sexual disorder that you cannot break free from. And I have good news. Before I transition this message, I feel like I, I was praying this morning, and our prayer team was praying. As I love this prayer. They prayed this for about 30 minutes. Break the chains off your people. Jesus said, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I feel like today and over the next few weeks, God is going to set many of you free from porn addiction, sex addiction. Some of you, you have, your mind has been so distorted by porn that you feel like you can't break free from it. You're enslaved in the prison of sexual fantasy. Here's the thing, and I'm gonna talk about this here pretty quick, but soul power cannot get you out of that prison. Willpower cannot get you out of that prison. The power of the Holy Spirit can. The power of the Holy Spirit can set you free. Come on, somebody. So let me just say this, and we talked about kind of the truth, and, and some of you might be feeling shame, because that's, that's, that's the feeling that most people that I've talked to that have been engaged in porn for some time, they feel absolute shame. Let me say this really quick, Jesus is not here to shame you. Jesus' first word is not condemnation. 
I can't believe you're, I can't believe you did that, right? Jesus is not pointing the finger at you. He's not bludgeoning you with the truth, right? Wow, you're in this exploitative fantasy world. Why would you ever do that? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus' first word is always, always, always welcome. Jesus' first word is always love and forgiveness. Come on, somebody. It's not shame and condemnation. Jesus' ultimate plan for you, as we, talk about, uh, as we talk about porn, as we talk about all the different things uh, with our sexualized culture over the next several weeks, it's all about how God wants to bring freedom in your life. He wants to break the chains off your mind and your whole person. God wants to set you free in your emotions. God wants to set you free in your will, your volition, your lifestyle, where you can direct your sexuality back to God and find real, authentic freedom. And some of you, you might not think that's possible. What I love is, is this passage found in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And a media team, if you could put that up really quick. 6.11, Paul is talking about uh, the kingdom of God. And he says, those who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then, I love this. It feels really negative at first, but then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Woo! And such were some of you. Guys, who... Who were the people that were being transformed by the preaching of the good news? It was pagans who were engrossed in sexual promiscuity. And it was pagans that were being liberated by the raw power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, the gospel, my gospel that Jesus gave to me did not come to you in word only, but it came to you in power and with full assurance and with the Holy Spirit. That's our message today, guys. Yeah, I can speak objectively about porn and and our sexualized culture, but if we don't have the power of God, if we don't have help from heaven, there's no way you can set yourself free from sexual addictions and sexual fantasies. But the good news is, is that right now, God is present. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your sexual history. He knows your sexual past. He knows your failures. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And his desire for you is not death and enslavement. And I got to struggle with this all my life. This is good preaching here. His desire for you is freedom. Man, and I got to say this, I feel like there's some marriages that have been affected by porn. Your marriage is, your marriage is on the rock, it's, it rocks, or whatever you want to call it. Maybe your marriage, you feel like it's unraveling because of maybe your spouse is involved in some porn addiction. I just believe, and I declare as the pastor of this church, that God's going to do something to marriages. God's going to set people free from a misdirection of sexual fulfillment and actually show you the right way and show you how you can be sexually satisfied within a covenant framework of man and woman loving God and directing their sexuality back to God in holiness, in integrity, and in truth. (laughs) 
So as we close here, what does God say about biblical sexuality? Well, let me say this at the very beginning. Um, before, let me say this, and I said this at the very beginning, excuse me. My mind's all over the place. Um, so tired, guys. Um, but one of the distinctive features of the early church was the entire pagan world knew that Christians never slept around. In fact, Galen, the classical pagan author, and I've, I've said this many times, a doctor, excuse me, said to the early Christians, they believe in bodily res resurrection and they do not sleep around. They believe in bodily resurrection and they do not sleep around. In fact, the early Christians were marked out by a high sexual character. They were known for three things, essentially. First, they were known for forgiving their enemies, they were known for radical generosity, and they were known for sexual restraint. So what does the Bible say about biblical sexuality? Is, God a, is, is he a pleasure denier? Is he a killjoy? Is he a life denier? Is he repress like all the desires, primal desires of your heart? No. In fact, what we find from the very beginning of the Bible, God is the one who blesses sex. He blesses sex within the covenant framework of chapter one and two of Genesis of marriage between a man and a woman. And he says in chapter one, 28, 29, whatever, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is more than a sexual mandate. This is actually the cultural mandate. And I believe when God tells Adam and Eve, his image bearers to be fruitful and multiply, he's essentially saying, you guys are blessable creatures in the words of my professor. You are blessable creatures. And God wants us to partner as blessable creatures with him to build communities of love and righteousness and peace and justice and wisdom and beauty. That's what this is about. We are called from the very beginning to build communities of righteousness and shalom. Come on, somebody. And beauty and justice and wisdom. But it does involve sex. God, in chapter one, from the very beginning, he is the one who invents sex. And sex is blessed by God. In fact, sex is a sacrament. Sex is sacramental, meaning it's just, it's sacred. It's something that God has given us as a gift. Sexual union, let me say this really quick, and this is just a, I'm gonna go through this logic here as fast as I can, but sexual union is not a technique, guys. It's not about performance. You are not a robot. In fact, when we look at the Bible, Sexual union is a picture of our desire to be known, to be seen, to be loved, and ultimately to be united with God himself. In fact, in the words of pretty much every scholar over the last two millennia have said this, sexual union is a signpost of our desire to be one with God. Can I get an amen? amen. So detach sex from God you get technique, and with technique, you only get commodification. You lose respect and human dignity. You go searching for more sex and more sex. Your taste, your sexual appetites, your sexual taste then are deformed, and you become someone that will never become fulfilled in your sexual life. I don't care how many sexual partners you have. If you do not follow God's plan, you cannot have sexual satisfaction. 
Number one, God blesses sex, and it's a picture of our ultimate longing and desire to be in, united with God himself. Number two, uh, sexual union is a whole person reality. It involves everything from your story, your history, your past, your future. Uh, it is intensely relational. In our sexual union, we learn respect for each other. It is a self-giving exercise. It's all about vulnerability. It provides meaning and purpose. And yes, guys, sex is given to us by God for pleasure. Can I get an amen to that? God is not a pleasure denier. The problem is, is that we go outside the boundaries of how God has defined sex, wanting what we want, and we'll talk about why we want what we want over the next several weeks and several months. And when we do that, we will never experience the pleasure that God wants for us. Number three, sex is all about holiness. First Thessalonians, our text that we read earlier, uh, Paul ties sexuality to knowing God or not knowing God. Sexuality is tied to knowing God or not knowing God. In other words, Paul is saying us, if you know God, you are a set apart person. Make sure you live a life of holiness. So what's holiness? Is holiness moralism? Is holiness, you got to do ABC, right? Moral ABC. Or is it just all about do's and don'ts? And I'm trying to think of creative ways of talking about that, but I, th I think that resonates with us. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is not like, oh, we can't dance anymore and we can't do this and we can't do this and we can't, you know what I mean, right? Um, that's not what holiness is. Holiness is simply a lifestyle dedicated to God. You know, LeBron has a lifestyle, right? What he has given himself completely to the game of basketball. So he wakes up early in the morning. If you know his routine, he does certain, he has a certain nutritional plan that he's on. He practices. He, every day is marked out by the game of basketball. In fact, he lines up his entire life around playing and being the best in his sport. What would you call that? You would call that holiness. Holiness is not some esoteric, mystical thing that like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. No, it's the positive affirmation of engaging in a lifestyle that is directed towards and dedicated to God himself. I, that, that was the fastest message that I've preached on this subject, and we're going to speak more to this issue. I want to end here by saying, okay, so we have an idea of where our culture is at. We have an idea of what the Bible says about human sexuality, but how do we get free? How do we break the chains of misdirected sexual desires and impulses, right? How do we break sexual addiction? How do we get free from sexual fantasies? I can go on and on and on. What's, what's the starting point? Well, I believe the starting point is this. It's not, it's not willpower. The starting point is, wait for it, you have to become a person by the power of the Spirit, a person of joy. Some of you are like, what? 
You have to become a person of joy. I am more convinced, been in ministry a long time, talked to a lot of different people about this issue. I have, I think there's, there's several components to the reasons why people, uh, it's hard for them to break free from sexual addiction. I think the major component is that in their life, they are joyless. Let me just say something really quick. I get this from John Tyson. He talks about neurobiology and neurobiologists have discovered that uh, your brain has a joy center. Did you know that? Which is located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex. That's somewhere up there, okay? He goes on to say, it's um, the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Can I get an amen? Isn't that incredible? The joy center um, is, is, is a way of developing, and in fact, the joy center is responsible for regulating all your emotions, all your emotions regarding pain, and it even, it even regulates uh, your immunity and many more things. In fact, your joy center of your brain is a guide to help us act like ourselves. In fact, it releases neurotransmitters or neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin, and it's the only part of the brain, get this, and this is important for us to hear, that overrides the main drive brain centers of food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. Joy overrides, did you hear me? This is from a neurobiologist, overrides the sexual disorder of your life. Joy regulates your passions and your emotions. Now it brings to light what Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy, my goodness. This is why David, in his famous repentance prayer, was it Psalm 51 or whatever, he said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. This is why he says in Psalm chapter 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy is what sets you free from a misordered sexuality. The reason why we get involved in sexual addictions and we, it, we find it hard to break free from them is because we have no joy and because we're beset with a profound sense of loneliness. It's not because you're a raging freakaholic. It's that you've lost your first love. You've lost your joy. So how do we, as we close here, and I'm gonna pray for us, how do we enter into the joy that gives us strength? Number one, we will talk about this ad infinitum at this church. The grace of God is not a disembodied thing. Your body and what you do with your body matters, which if that is true, which it is, if your body matters, then what you do, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this life is not done in vain, which means that your weekly habits and practices of being with Jesus is what restores your joy. Being in the word of God, 
being in prayer on a daily basis, being in a worshipful position every single day, opening your life up to the presence and power of God through weekly bodily practices. That could be Sabbath. That's being consistent on a Sunday morning. Come on. And when you wake up and you don't feel like coming to church, you say, this is a discipline. This is a practice. I don't feel like coming to church. I want to watch the Dallas Cowboys win, hopefully, right? But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to skip church because of that and how I'm feeling. I'm going to come to church. The more you practice the practices or the overall lifestyle that Jesus offers us, the more you will experience the joy of the Lord that gives you strength strength. When you read your Bible, there are so many people that like, like when they read their Bible for like 15 minutes and they're like, I don't, I hear this from so many people. I didn't get anything out of it today. Don't worry about that. Just be there. Just show up. Just open up your Bible and just read what might seem incoherent, but I promise you over time, things will make sense. And over time, God will see your faithfulness and he will honor you and he will speak to you. And I've realized this about how God speaks to us. God doesn't just speak to us in the moment. Many times God will speak to us about three months in front of us or 10 months in front of us or four years in front of us. And if we're so fixated about, I need a word now, if we're not careful, we lose a sense of what God is saying to us from the future. I don't know why I said that, but I, somebody needed to hear that. It is the weekly bodily practices of reading scripture, opening up the Bible or going to you version on your phone, waking up early in the morning, a little bit earlier before you go to work and just worshiping. God, maybe get in your, your car, go on in a prayer drive. It's maybe you take 15 minutes during your, your lunch break and you just, you worship. Or maybe before, before you go home to work, and I'm going to talk more about this over the next maybe few months, before you set, set foot in your house, the first thing you do is you just give your entire day to God. You just open your heart to the Holy Spirit and say, I got to give you everything, right? The more you bodily practice intercession, and prayer, and worship, and reading chunks of scripture, and meditating on the word of God, and memorizing it, and fasting. Woo, fasting, yeah. You're gonna enter into the joy that you have, oh man, that you thought could never be possible. We are not a disembodied religion. We don't just come on a Sunday and get zapped with some gaseous substance we call grace and we turn into angels, perfect angels. No, your body matters. And what you do with it in prayer, in scripture, in worship is what changes and transforms you and also leads you into the strength of God's joy. Number two, we, I've said this multiple times, but we cannot overcome sexual, our sexualized culture, I'll say it that way, through willpower alone, soul power alone, good vibes alone. You can send your good vibes, you can send your good thoughts. Those aren't enough. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. We need more than good vibes, somebody. We need more than good feelings. Feelings come, feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. But one thing I do is I stake my life on the word of God. That was Martin Luther. Here's the thing. What we need is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
Bible makes it, makes it very clear. It's not by might or by power. It's by my spirit. It's by my spirit that will bring change to you. Ezekiel 36, it's the spirit of God that changes the human heart, the human mind. Come on, somebody. Jesus' ultimate purpose by going to the cross was so he could baptize you with the spirit. Do you know we no longer live in the new age, in, in the age of sin, excuse me? We live in the new age of the spirit. First Corinthians, I say this all the time, chapter 12 says, we were made because we're in Christ to drink of the spirit. Our way to navigate the complexities of our absurd world is to live by the power of the spirit. How does that happen? It happens by giving your body every single day to the practices of Jesus. And by doing so, you open your life up to the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, my last one is number three, community. We need each other, guys. We need to table with each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to be accountable. We need to be honest. We need to talk about hard things and funny things. Can we have some fun? Go to a barbecue. Come on, invite people over to your house. Today, invite somebody and go to a restaurant and laugh your face off. Come on, we need each other. We need more laughter. We need to do fun things. Cornhole is a fun thing for guys who are over 45 years old and can't move their body like they used to. Play cornhole. Do some volleyball. If you're over 45, don't run a 40, okay? You'll pull a hammy. And bring family, your families together. Invite people over to your house. Be a part of community. Don't just come on a Sunday and just sit around. Get to know people. And we're going to talk about how we can do this over the next several months. But we need community. When you have community, when you have good friends who love Jesus and you're honest about the hard things and the good things and you're laughing your face off. Some of you, you know what your problem is? You haven't laughed until you cried in a long time. Some of you need that. A couple nights ago, I was with some friends. I laughed until I cried. And, and I remember thinking, man, I feel so good right now. I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying, right? We need each other. We need each other. We need the Holy Spirit. And it's an absolute imperative that we pick up the lifestyle of Jesus of prayer and scripture reading. My God, that fly. This is the second time that's done this, right? Is it just me? This message must be really anointed, you demon fly. But as we engage the the spiritual bodily practices of being with Jesus, God's going to restore your joy back. He's going to transform your neurochemistry. He's going to rewire your brain. He's going to do something to your emotions that no psychologist, and I love psychologists, or counselor could ever do. That's what I want for you. And everyone said amen. Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Fathers, we close. I just thank you that you're, you're setting into motion over the next nine weeks something brand new for this church. You're gonna show us how to direct our lives. You're gonna show us the values of the kingdom in fresh ways. I thank you that our hearts would be open and 
sensitive to even controversial subjects. I thank you that you would do a deep work in our hearts today. I thank you that Jesus, you come not to condemn or shame, you come to set us free. I thank you that every man and woman in here that has a sexual addiction, that they would know that they are loved. I thank you that the shame, some of you are just under two things, shame and chronic depression. I see it all over you. I just pray by the power of the spirit, you would lift that off of every son and daughter in this room. Some of you, you're saying in your mind, Chris, you don't know my sexual history. It's fraught with brokenness. If you knew what I have done, you would throw me out of this church. Let me just say this really quick. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus is welcoming you. Jesus is here to forgive you. Jesus is here to bring healing. Jesus is here to bring truth. Jesus is here to transform your mind and your heart and to restore the joy of your salvation. So I thank you, Father, for that, for this church. With every eye closed, we're gonna transition. Mark's gonna come up right now. Mark, if you could actually come up. I wanna pray for one group. So your eyes are closed, your heads about you say, Chris, that's me. I want to be set free from this sexual issue. I want to direct my life, my sexuality in a fresh way to God. I, I just want to follow Jesus. I want to experience all that God has for me but I want to live for God, not for myself. And if that's you, you want me to pray for you right now, I'm going to pray really quick. On the count of three, could you just raise your hand? No one's looking. And there's no, you know what, you know what, keep your eyes closed. What I love about this church is we're a no judgment church. Yes, we will call things out. Yes, we will name the sins of our culture, but we will always speak the truth in love. So if you say, Chris, I want you to pray for me right now. I need help. I need forgiveness. I need freedom. On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Go ahead raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, you can put your hands down. If you raised your hand, I just want you to place it over your heart right now. Father, I thank you for the release of the power of the Holy Spirit for every son and daughter in this room. We don't live by feelings. Feelings are important, but we live by the power of God. And whether we feel the power of God or not today, we believe that your power is being released in our bodies, our minds, and our emotions. Something's happening in this church, guys. I see marriages being healed. I see lives broken by sexual trauma being transformed and healed. I see people that have been addicted to porn being forgiven and healed and transformed in radically fresh ways. So Father, we just say yes, beginning today, we say yes to your work of freedom in our lives, Holy Spirit. Lift off shame, lift off fear, and set your sons and daughters free to be who you've called them to be in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Can you give God a hand this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.